Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Last week, our brother Mathani faithfully took us through Psalm 11, and this morning we have the joy of going through Psalm 16 together. Psalm chapter 16, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my, you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's bow our heads as we ask for the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, make me a faithful mouthpiece of what you will say to your people. Let me decrease in order that Christ might increase. Save anyone here who has not yet made Christ his confidence and help your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin today's message with a question for you. What is your ultimate confidence? I wonder what your hiding place is. What is your safe space as you're sitting on your chair this morning? It has been said that at the height of Germany's confidence to win the Second World War was its Air Force capabilities. The Luftwaffe, as it was called, was a component of the German forces tasked with the air defenses of Germany. And at the dawn of the Second World War, the Luftwaffe was the best air force in the world. The German pilots claimed over 70,000 aerial victories during the time of the Luftwaffe. With the Luftwaffe, the Germans were indispensable, at least for a season. One of the pilots once said this 
recounting his experience in the Luftwaffe. He said, we were proud, we were pampered, we were the guarantors of the future. It didn't take long for the Germans to realize that even with the Luftwaffe, it was not enough for them to win the Second World War and ended them in their crushing defeat. Their ultimate confidence, their refuge let them down. And I wonder what your confidence is this morning. Looking at this morning's text then, and similar to last week's psalm that we went through, we're told to the author of today's psalm is, Mr. David himself. David makes it no secret what his confidence is. His confidence is rooted in God, Yahweh, the Lord, who is his Lord. To further unpack this, we're going to look at our text this morning under the following headings. Firstly, David's devotion to God, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, David's devotion to the people of God, verse 3. Thirdly, David's devotion to the true worship of God and its blessings, verses 4 to 8. And then lastly, David's devotion to Christ, verses 9 to 11. Firstly then, David's devotion to God. Verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Keep me, protect me, watch over me, O God. We're not told what circumstances David particularly found himself in. But what is clear for us to see is that David found himself in need of God's protection. Whether this is a prayer of, of general protection, like I'm sure most of you did last night, praying for God's protection overnight, or whether there was a specific imminent danger that David was facing, the scripture is silent on that. What we do know, though, from this verse is that David puts his trust and his confidence in God. The future about his personal safety, his physical health, the situation at Israel's borders from its enemies, or his spiritual health was un uncertain. Now, you can imagine what people might say to David today. Come on, David, back yourself. For goodness sake, you're the king of Israel, David. You just need to say it and it'll be done. You're a warrior. You killed Goliath at the age of 12 when you were a boy, a man 20 times your size. You got this. But listen to what he says. For in you, I take refuge. A refuge, as my friend highlighted last week, gives the idea of our source of trust and security. It's the place we go to for protection. David clearly tells us here that his ultimate place of safety and protection is God. Now, like David, there are many dangers that need us to flee away from and to find refuge in God. Our physical harm and financial difficulties are legitimate dangers that face us that we need to commit to the Lord. But the one danger I want to linger on this morning that we need to commit to the Lord is the danger of sin and the assaults of sin. If there's one thing that you don't want to place your, your own self-confidence in is in your warfare against sin. It's okay. I mean, I, I can have a couple more glasses of wine. I, I'm a big tank. 
It's okay, yeah? Well, you know, I have a history of, uh, of pornography. I don't need anyone to hold me accountable. I got this. Now, you wouldn't sleep late at, you wouldn't sleep late at night in Joburg with your gate wide open, your front door open, and think that it's going to, it's going to be okay. So why are you prepared to not get all the help you can get to fight sin, which has much more eternal consequences than loss of possession and life? The prayer that we all need to make, I plead with you, is preserve me, O God, from the assaults of sin, from yielding to temptation, for in you I take refuge. And David continues to say in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, for many of you here, I'm sure there are certain names that only a, a handful of people can address you by. For husbands, you might call your wives honey or meskat. Or even weird terms like cupcake or opunchununu. <laughs> I don't know why people want to be called that, but there are names that also that only your immediate family know you by. Now, growing up, I used to be called Lemo. And to be honest with you, I got offended if anyone else but my mother called me this name. It was a covenant name, as it were. It was a name that only a handful of people that I was covenanted in blood could call me by. Notice what David calls God here. He says, in him, Lord, all caps, now, whenever you see Lord in all caps in Scripture, you must know that behind that word is a weighted word, name for God, Yahweh. God's revealed name only for his covenant people, the Israelites. David calls him this because of the familial relationship that he enjoys with God. Now, as if this relationship wasn't enough, he continues to say, the Lord, my Lord. Not only is he part of God's covenant people, enjoying a special relationship and special revelation from God, but God is his Lord and is Lord over his life. He has authority over David, and David submits to this. You see, to truly live a faithful life is not enough for you to just know that God exists. James tells us in James 2.9 that even demons believe and they shudder. It's not enough for you to believe and to know that God exists. It's not enough for you to be a faithful attendee of our church. You know, you, you have your own uh, name tag printed for you. That's not enough. He needs to be your master who rules over you. You can't cherry pick. You can't choose when you'll obey God and when you won't. Children and teenagers, it's not enough for God to be your parents' Lord. It's not enough. You need to say that God is my Lord. Some of you perhaps here call yourselves Christian. You know, when you're filling a form, you need to take on the religion box. You need to say Christian. But deep down inside, you know that God is not your Lord. You just know that he exists, and you go to church, and so it stands to reason that you're a Christian, right? Now, 
May God change your heart to truly come to him through Christ so that you may call him, like David says, my Lord. But David moves on and continues to say, I have no good apart from you in verse 2b. David here shows that he has the, the right estimation of himself. As he thinks of himself, he is sober enough to know that he has no good apart from God. Now, there are at least three observations from this that I want to highlight. Firstly, everything, everything ultimately finds its goodness in God. Everything ultimately finds its goodness in God. Marriage, food, work, their arts, a physical beauty, everything under and beyond the sun finds its goodness in Christ. I like how the Reformation Study Bible puts it. It says, listen to this, it's so good. It says, God is the ultimate good, the source that makes all other lesser goods possible. By implication, then, there's two things. There's a first, sorry, I mean, this is our second point now. Knowing that everything finds its goodness in God, that's the first observation. The second observation is this. All the good that is in us finds its goodness in him. Romans 3.12 and following says this. You don't need to go there. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And Romans 14.23 continues to say, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Every good thing that we do, paying your taxes, giving money to the guy on the road, all of that, that which does not proceed from faith is sin. The last observation is this. God is our eternal good. For the Christian, every good that happens to him or her is ultimately a pointer to God's goodness, which will be fully consummated in the age to come when we'll be saved from the second death and brought into Christ's presence. I wonder if this is true for you. Do you have any other goods apart from God? May God make us those who, after being diagnosed with cancer, would say, God is good. May we be those who say, who after a loss of job and financial ruin, God is good. May we say, after a loss of spouse, God is good. I don't mean this in a Twitter way, God is good. Or these songs that are made, God is good, when there's no weight behind that word. I mean, truly believing that God is good. Now, the world sees you in the midst of suffering when you say God is good. They say, hold on one second. This person doesn't say God is good for all the toys that God has given him. This person says God despite suffering and not having all these toys around him. There's something in this, in this religion. What kind of faith is this? We now move to our second heading, David's devotion to God's people. First point was David's devotion to God. Now we're going to look at David's devotion to God's people. Verse 3, 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Hmm. <laughs> what a beautiful statement. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. The saints here refers to God's holy people. Those who are in God's covenant community in this, and in this context, it would have been the Israelites. The saints in the land today is the church. God's chosen people through Christ. And notice what David says about them. He says they are the excellent ones. I'm reading a book called Multipliers. It's a leadership book, and in this book, the author argues that there's two kinds of leaders. There's those who multiply talent, and there's those who diminish talent. And in essence, effectively reducing the effectiveness of that team. And he says that the success of a team depends on the quality of the leader, be it in corporate, be it in wherever. Now you put a bad coach in front of the spring box, and we're not a record-breaking rugby nation. You put Rusty and Jacques before the spring box, and you know what happened. The leader makes the team. Now, similar to this illustration here, David can say that God's people are the excellent ones because of who is behind them, because of who is their leader. There's no excellence that can be found in the church. I'll tell you that for free on his own. David himself was an adulterer. David was a murderer. And he can say that him, alongside God's covenant people, are the excellent ones. He and all of God's people find their excellence, their virtue, their nobleness in Christ, who is the only excellent one and attributes his excellence to his people. And we'll read more of this in later verses. Now, David is exemplary when he further says about God's people, in whom is all my delight. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Now, for David, devotion to God went hand in hand with devotion to God's people. 1 John 4.20 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. The mark of a faithful Christian is to follow in the steps of Christ. And it involves a change in the affections to, to hate the things that Christ hates and love the things that Christ loves. Christ loves the church. So much so that he identifies himself with the church. And we see that in, in Paul's call in, in the Damascus Road. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Referring to the church. Now, I wonder if you can speak like David and say, my delight is in God's people. I wonder if that's true for you. Do you love the church? Can you say, like David says of God's people, my delight is in God's people? Let me just say this, that this is easier said than done. Let me just put that out there. It's easier said than done. Fellow brothers and sisters will not greet you sometimes. They might say harsh things about you. They may cross boundary lines 
And the longer you're in a church, you might find that they might hurt you badly. Do you delight in these people? Do you love these people? Now you ask, that given how messy relationships with God's people can become, how can, how can you foster delight and love for one another? Firstly, just a few points. Get to know them. Get to know them. You can't delight in someone you don't know. As far as possible, please don't be in a hurry to rush off as soon as you hear the benediction. Grab a cup of coffee and speak to a stranger. Secondly, notice your own imperfection and the need for God's people to be patient with you. Thirdly, keep short accounts. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that if you're about to give a gift at God's altar and there you remember that your fellow brother and sister has something against you, says leave the gift there, reconcile yourself with your brother and sister, and then come back and make your offering. Lastly, love and delight in them for Christ's sake. See the church as Christ sees the church, as his precious treasure in which he delights. His elect people who are so valuable that he gave his precious life for them. I wonder if you delight in God's people. Let's move to our third point now. David's devotion to the true worship of God and his blessing. The sorrows, he continues to say, this is the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now you just need to follow Instagram and Twitter to get tempted into thinking that all the wicked prosper. Of course, I'm not saying anyone who posts anything on Instagram or Twitter is an, un is an unbeliever. But you, I mean, you just look at the life of your unbelieving classmate. His school fees are paid up. If he's a foreigner, he already has his visa to come to the country. His accommodation is sorted. He's getting straight A's and he already has a job offer. As soon as he graduates, he has a job waiting for him. Oh, look at your unbelieving neighbor, for that matter. His business is doing great, and he never has to worry about anything. Now, now you know your classmate's life, and, and you know your neighbor. These people, you know that this person hates God. He doesn't love God, but everything is going well for him. What do you mean, David, when you say that the sorrows of those who, so, who follow another God shall multiply? In fact, it seems like the opposite. The sorrows of those who follow Jesus shall multiply. And guess what? I'm a living testimony of that. I'm behind on my bond payments. I have, a, I have a bad, I have temper issues and my home is falling apart. I got bad marks last year. My bursary is going to let me go. I can't get a visa to come back in the country to complete my studies. And I follow Jesus. My sorrows are multiplying. Now, Asaph struggles with this exact same question in Psalm 73. Asaph struggles with this issue in Psalm 73. You don't need to go there. He says this. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. 
They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their eyes overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Asaph, what's going on? There seems to be an injustice here until he gets to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary with God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It turns out that David knows what he's talking about. Those who don't follow Jesus will be recompensed. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive everything we've done, whether good or evil. I wonder if this is you. I wonder if you are chasing after other gods. I wonder if you're chasing after other things instead of the true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your sorrows, listen to this, your sorrows will not increase. Your sorrows will multiply. Who are the mathematicians here? Linear escalations, multiplications, we're not talking about the same thing. And if not in this life, then in the life to come. Turn, I plead with you, to the one true God instead of chasing after another God and multiplying your sorrows. And David confesses in verse 4b, he says that he will not follow in their practices. He says, their drink offerings I will not pour out to take their names on my lips. Since he knows that the sorrows of those who fall on other gods will increase, he's not following them. He says, I'm seeing where the ship is going, and guess what? I'm jumping off. David was a one-god man. He will not worship other gods. There is a sense in which, as Christians, we need to swim against the currents, and we need to go against the grain of our culture at times. We need to go against the culture of sexual immorality, of materialism, of unwholesome talk. He says, their drink offerings I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Verse five and six are almost identical or similar. And we're going to look at them together. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines are fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. By this, David is saying that God is the source of blessings for him. All of the other deals that could be structured for David, he looked at all the options, all of the structures, everything was put before him, and he got an offer that he could not refuse. God was his inheritance. Think of the Israelites who've just gone through you know, Jordan and land is being allocated. You know, this clan gets this, this clan this, and everything is given. All the tribes are given land. Now you're a Levite, you're standing back and saying, hold on one second. 
I mean, it's not hard to see that all the land has been given. What's left for me? God says to the Levites, I am your inheritance. What a deal is that? <laughs> it doesn't get better than that. We're not talking about real estate here. God is your inheritance, Levites. And this is the situation that David finds himself in here. God is his chosen portion. God is his lot. Everything, every other deal, every other possibility, every other lot that could have been thrown for him, there's no better one than this. The imagery of cup that we see in scripture can either mean a source of destruction or blessing. And for David, God is his cup filled with the blessings of a beautiful inheritance. Now, every Christian can say without a doubt and believe this, that they have a beautiful inheritance, irrespective of external circumstances. Their inheritance is not lands or talents or offspring. All of these things are good things. Their inheritance is eternity with Christ. Now, I wonder if this is true for you sitting here. What is your lot in life? What is your chosen portion? We'll continue now in verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The context of the use of blessing here is, is that of praise instead of bestowing good. David cannot bestow good to God. But David can praise God. He says, I praise God who gives me counsel. Now, the, the best decision makers, the best decision makers have the best advisors and counselors. Best decision makers, be it presidents, be it coaches, be it corporate leaders, you'll see behind them, there's a band, there's a broad of best advisors and counselors. Psalm 15, 22 says, plans fail for lack of counselors, but with many advisors, they succeed. David has God as his counselor. And we would do well to follow in his example. God counsels us through his word, as it is illuminated to us through his Holy Spirit, and through biblical advice that we get from fellow brothers and sisters. If we cut ourselves from these, we forfeit having God as our counselor. He says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. Now, if you're reading the ESV version, you'll see a footnote next to the word heart, indicating that heart in Hebrew, or the word in there, the rendering is kidneys. David says, in the night also, my kidneys instruct me. Even in the hidden places, the unseen places, the deep parts of David, he gets instruction. And the context here is rooted in God's word. Now, Charles Spurgeon once said this of, um, of John Bunyan, the Puritan who penned and immortalized Pilgrim's Progress. Now, if you've read, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, I commend that to you. Charles Spurgeon says this of Bunyan. He says, he said, read anything by John Bunyan, and you'll see that it almost, it's almost like reading the Bible itself. Why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and you'll find that his blood is bebline. The very essence of the Bible flows through him. And like Bunyan, it's once we too have become saturated in God's word 
that we can lie down in the middle of the night and meditate of his word and get instruction. Let's meditate. Let's saturate ourselves. Let's become one with, God, with God's word. Now David continues to say in verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You've heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. If you don't see someone often, it's easy to forget about him completely. I think about your, your closest friends at, at high school or varsity. It takes an incredible amount of work to keep that friendship going, especially if you're a guy. I don't know about you. I, I, I struggle to keep friendships going. I need my wife's intervention to help me carry, keep them going. Am I the only guy who struggles with... But it becomes easy to maintain friendship with someone you see often. The idea here is that David has set God before him. He thinks about him, his attributes, his character, his beauty, his word, often. God is not an afterthought for David. It says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What, a, what an amazing gift you have. The gift of not being shaken by anything because you're walking with God. It's almost unimaginable when you think of a number of things that knock, off, knock us off balance. You know, a bad WhatsApp message, tough feedback from your employer, getting bad marks in an exam. But with close fellowship with God, these can and be short-lived, not only because of our eternity is taken care of, but because our identity is not rooted in these things. Now, this reality is a great source of joy for David, as we can see in verse 9a. He rejoices with every fiber in his being because of God's fellowship. Finally then, let's look at God's devotion to Christ as our last heading. David says in verse 9b, he says, he says, my flesh also dwells secure. Why? I think the answer is in verse 10. For or because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The word Sheol there can mean a place of the dead or Hades. Now hold on, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? You're probably asking, what is David saying here? Is David saying that he will never die? Or that even if he does die, his time in the grave will be short-lived? Now, two things are certain in life, death and taxes. David is going to die. So what's going on? What is he talking about here? Now, we're going we're gonna to let Scripture interpret Scripture for us this morning. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2, 25 to 32. Acts chapter 2, 25 to 32. Listen to what Peter has to say. Let's start at verse 22, actually. He says, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, is in your midst, as you know yourselves. 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, listen to this, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to sure, or let your Holy One see corruption. Listen to what Peter's about to do. He's about to expound on this. He says, as he carries on, you have made known to me the parts of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. He says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The Apostle Peter clearly helps us untie this knot in Psalm 16:10. David is a type of Christ. And as a type of Christ, he, was, he wasn't talking about himself, but was ultimately pointing us to Christ. The Lord Jesus who would die, but whose death would be short-lived because he was to be raised on the third day. David's flesh dwells secure. There will always be someone on his throne because Jesus, because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, this was good news for David. And I wonder if it's good news for you today. Paul makes a similar observation in Acts chapter 13 on the same text in Psalm 16. Speaking to the people of Antioch and Pisidia, he says in Acts chapter 13, um, verse 35 and following. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let, not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purposes of his own generation, fell asleep and is laid with us today. Fell asleep and was with his fathers and saw corruption. David saw corruption. But he who God raised did not see corruption. I was speaking with someone during the holidays on, on Christ the shock of Christ's death, of how he left the eternal joys of heaven into an impure, to come and live into an impure world, impure earth. And I like the way Paul Washer puts it, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him. He says, the dying of Christ on the cross is like a king who dives headlong into a sewerage pool, a sewerage pool with all manner of disease and impurity to save peasants who were actually enjoying themselves in that sewerage pool, not knowing that they're facing certain death from disease and drowning. He dives headlong and pulls them out. And yet he himself drowns into that, in that sewerage pool. I imagine reading an article the next morning of this this king who went into a sewage pool to save peasants who are actually happy in that, not knowing that they're dying. This king would be a hero of heroes. 
Yet it's not the case because those who read that article the next morning are in the exact same pool. They say, why on earth, did, what's wrong with this king? Why did you jump in that sewerage pool? We were having fun. Everyone was having fun into that, in that sewerage pool. You see, sin blinds. Sin blinds. And I wonder if this is you this morning. If you're the person that's unknowingly drowning in that sewerage pool and are facing certain death because of germs and infection and disease. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that if you're not in Christ, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. In your case, you've scorned the path of life that God has made known to his people in verse 11. Turn to him by seeing your sin and seek forgiveness through him. Turn to him and be washed from the filth of sin and put on the new robes that he has ready for you. And having done this, you can join David and anyone who belongs to Christ in experiencing verse 11 of our text. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those who find themselves in the path of life are truly on the golden highway. Not only do they find themselves in the path of life, but notice what David says. It's only in God's presence that you can find fullness of joy. Is there anything fuller than full? Is there anything longer than forever? Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness in which our souls can be satisfied. Let me say that again. The enjoyment of God, and I want to tweak that and say, in Christ is the only happiness in which our souls can be satisfied. On one particular summer day during these holidays, I found myself continuously thirsty. And I went and got an ice cold glass of Coke filled with ice and I drank that and that was so refreshing. As soon as I finished that 15 minutes later, I was thirsty again. This time I needed to try something new. I went to find juice and I poured ice and I drank again. And this carried on for four, you know, after four or five glasses and said, hold on one second, something's missing. I went and got an ice cold glass of water. And I drank that. I said, where have you been, glass of water? And this is the case with us in life. We look for the cokes of this world, the juices of this world to, to give us pleasure and joy and happiness. We go to the juice and the coke of sex and entertainment, not knowing that ultimately what we need is the water of Christ. We need that spring of water that wells up to eternal life. Children, you say, guys, let's, let's, watch a, let's watch a Paw Patrol movie. Anyone is happy? Yes, let's watch Paw Patrol. You say, guys, let's just, let's just read a Bible story for 10 minutes. And you just see their faces glazed. Why? Because it's boring. Christianity is boring. Why would I want to do that? I want to watch Paw Patrol. Let's read a nice book. That's the case with us. Unless God opens us 
At least we see Christ for who he truly is. We don't want any more Coke. We don't want juice. You want that glass of water, that spring of water that's welling up to eternal life. Christianity is not boring. True, everlasting treasure and happiness can be found in Christ alone. In closing, I want to ask you then, what is your ultimate confidence? What is your safe place? What is your true source of eternal joy and comfort? I plead with you, make Jesus your confidence by seeing and believing in him and loving him despite all the uncertainties of life, and you'll find true joy and happiness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a joy it is to know that in you there's pleasures forevermore. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May this be true of all of us here. Let us run away from the fleeting pleasures, pleasures of this world, which only quench our thirst only for a moment. Let us go to that spring of refreshing, cooling water that wells up to eternal life. Oh, Father, there's anyone here who is blinded by sin, who is in that sewerage pool, having the best time of his life, not knowing that there's certain death facing him. Let him hold on to the hand of Christ that dove into that pool and let him be yanked out and be cleaned and be given pure, white, sparkling rose of Christ. Please come and do this. In Jesus' name, amen.